Faye, I don't know about you, but pap smear changes happen so frequently, I feel like, and I can't keep up anymore now that my primary practice is really just in obstetrics. Yeah, and it's really difficult, I think, even for our residents to remember everything, especially with Creogs looming overhead in, towards the end of January. So what methods do you have of making sure that they and us keep up to date? Well, if I need a quick reference, one place that I can know I can turn to is the OBG project because I can hold this in my special library on my bookshelf and say, aha, this is the most recent thing that I know that they have read and up to date in a nice bullet pointed summary. And then they've even got an alert on their homepage right now to get you signed up to be able to know as soon as the newest recommendations coming from the USPSTF on cervical cancer screening get dropped. Um, that's pretty, pretty neat that you can be right on the front lines of brand new changes in patient care. Yeah, absolutely. And even more for residents, uh, they have the resident core curriculum. So you can go ahead and sign up for that um, and basically look at comprehensive OBGYN resources for your education. And of course, now the OBG project also has an app so you can access this even more quickly and easily from your phone. Get signed up for all of the great things that come from the OBG project, including OBG First, absolutely free for residents all four years on our website, creagsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar, get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Priyags over, over coffee. coffee. All right, so not to induce a bunch of pain and nausea in everybody, but we thought we'd take a tour down urology lane and talk today about kidney stones, um, or nephrolithiasis, I guess as the medical name is. So Faye, what are our learning objectives? So today we're going to understand the incidence and risk factors for kidney stones. Um, we're going to familiarize ourselves with the presentation, diagnosis, and evaluation of kidney stones. And finally, begin management of kidney stones and recognize when to refer to urology, particularly for the pregnant patient. So uh, Nick, start us off. Talk to us about you know how common kidney stones are. I, I feel like we hear about them all the time. Like everyone has kidney stones. Yeah, I mean, they are super common. Um, there are estimates that basically kidney stones affect up to somewhere around 10% of U.S. adults. And in doing the background for this episode, Faye, I learned that there is a kidney stone belt in the United States where they're even more prevalent, um, which affects the south and southeast of the United States, basically. That's an unfortunate um, uh, term. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is not the place that I want to be. Well, I'm moving to the southern U.S., I guess, but I don't want to be in a kidney stone belt. Anyways, the presentation of kidney stones, I think we all know it, is very, very classic. But just to review it, usually presents with unilateral flank pain, often colicky in nature, with a waxing, waning kind of description of, you know, paroxysms or episodes that are every 20 to 60 minutes. This pain frequently radiates down to the groin. There are also urinary symptoms such as urgency, hematuria, or dysuria that can frequently be present. And the pain can be quite severe. So there can be nausea, vomiting, and otherwise generalized abdominal pain that can be present. 
In patients who know the pain of kidney stones, um, they also will recognize themselves the relief that occurs once the stone passes through the urethrovesicular junction. Um, again, once the stone gets into the bladder, there's usually some relief that goes on with that. Um, risk factors overall for stones include things like hypertension, gout, obesity, diabetes, there are certain dietary characteristics such as high protein, particularly animal protein, carbohydrate and sodium intake, poor fiber intake, and then high oxalate or consumption of carbonated drinks with high contents of phosphoric acid, which is mostly present in higher quantities in like sweetened sodas. Recurrent UTIs with urease-producing organisms are also a risk factor, and the classic association here is with those staghorn calculi and proteus mirabilis. I don't know if that's a Creog question, Faye, but that was certainly a shelf question once upon a time. Yeah. <laughs> and then certain medications and supplements can also predispose to kidney stones. So topiramate, furosemide, acetazolamide, vitamin C, and vitamin D are all kind of associated with kidney stone formation. Stones themselves are made up of different stone materials. Most commonly, they're formed from calcium of some sort. The most common is calcium oxalate, and that's followed by calcium phosphate. And those two make up over 80% of stones that are identified. The other types of stones that can be found are uric acid stones, struvite stones, and cysteine stones. Let's get into how exactly we diagnose nephrolithiasis. Sure. So we will start off, you know, of course, the patient uh, has the symptoms that you've presented with, and we are very suspicious. So we should get some labs and imaging. Typically, patients with a suspected stone should get a BMP to assess kidney function, and they should also have a urinalysis to assess for hematuria and potential infection, because a concomitant UTI may complicate stone management. In terms of imaging, the preferred imaging is going to be a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis without contrast, and this actually allows for good imaging of the kidneys and bladder, and the CT characteristics of stones can also help predict stone composition and guide therapy. In terms of in pregnancy, um, sometimes, you know, we want to try and avoid a CT abdomen pelvis in pregnancy given the radiation exposure to the fetus. And so um, we can use an ultrasound of the kidneys and the bladder. So this will avoid that radiation that we talked about, but it's still going to provide good imaging to evaluate for presence of stones and if there is severe obstruction present. Uh, bladder follow-through is also important to evaluate for presence of, um, you guys have probably seen this on reports, but they call it ureteral jets or basically visible efflux on ultrasound of urine entering the bladder from the ureters. Unfortunately, ultrasound is not the best modality to look for kidney stones because the sensitivity of ultrasound for stone detection is only about 50 to 75%, but for CT, it's actually 90 plus percent. However, complication rates for misdiagnoses are similar between CT and ultrasound, less than 1%, and so it's still prudent in the pregnant patient to start off with that ultrasound if stones are the primary suspicion. All right, Nick, so let's say we have now decided and we've diagnosed that this patient has kidney stones. So what is going to be the next step in terms of management? Yeah, so most patients fortunately can be managed expectantly with pain medications and advice to hydrate liberally until the stone passes through. Hospitalization may be required if patients are unable to take PO, they have uncontrolled pain, or if they have fever that is raising concern for, a, again, as you mentioned, Faye, a concomitant infection. 
Patients should strain their urine for several days and bring any collected stones or gravel to their clinic to allow for stone analysis and to then direct preventive therapy. NSAIDs are the preferred pain management over opioids, and they actually tend to work better for patients in these scenarios too. Um, again, in pregnant patients, though, we often are restricted in our use of NSAIDs. It can be considered in the pregnant patient to give a single dose of Ketorolac in the emergency department or triage setting if you're not near the time of delivery to provide some short-term relief. But again, in the pregnant patient, we're often having to use opioids for some of the longer expectant management um, because of the concern with chronic exposure to NSAIDs leading to premature closure of the fetal ductus arteriosus. Stone size is the best predictor of passage ultimately. And so if you're measuring stone size on your imaging, stones that are five millimeters or less almost always will pass spontaneously. Stones that are over 10 millimeters are unfortunately unlikely to pass spontaneously, as are stones that are in the proximal ureter. These are the stones that are most likely to contribute to obstruction, and so are the ones that typically, again, because of their poor rates of passage, you're going to be consulting urology about. Medical expulsive therapy can be considered with alpha blockers if the stone is in this intermediate range between 5 and 10 millimeters. That medical expulsion therapy is typically used with tamsulosin, 0.4 milligrams daily, up to four weeks. Um, again, remember tamsulosin is an alpha blocker. These generally have minimal side effects, fortunately, um, and actually have been shown in randomized trial settings to be pretty effective, particularly for more distal stones. Unfortunately, though, when we come back to the idea of the pregnant patient, there isn't a lot of safety data for these alpha blockers in pregnancy, so they typically are not used in pregnant patients. Um, but again, on a case-by-case -case basis, risk-benefit description could theoretically be considered. Nifedipine and other calcium channel blockers can also be considered, with nifedipine having the advantage of being used frequently in pregnancy for other indications, um, but nifedipine does have lower success rates in medical expulsive therapy compared to the alpha blockers. All right, Faye, so we mentioned very briefly there stones that are 10 millimeters or greater are ones that are unlikely to pass and would be for urology referral. Um, what other things do we need to think about for referring to our colleagues or thinking about complex management? Sure. So this is when we need to think about having surgery. And these indications can include things like persistent pain, infection, and urinary tract obstruction. So urgent decompression is required in patients who have a suspected or confirmed urinary tract infection, if there's bilateral obstruction and acute kidney injury, or if there's unilateral obstru obstruction and acute kidney injury in patients with just one kidney. You can also consider elective decompression in patients who have other things, like you said, a stone that's greater than or equal to 10 millimeters because those are less likely to pass on their own. You can also consider elective decompression if there are stones under 10 millimeters that haven't passed after four to six weeks of observation. Pregnant patients with stones can also get decompression after failing this observation period, um, and also if there's things like persistent kidney obstruction or recurrent urinary tract infections. Surgical approaches that we normally think about are things like shockwave lithotripsy, ure ureteroscopy with stenting, or percutaneous nephrolithotomy. Stenting and shockwave therapy are generally preferred, and urologists will choose 
which they want based on the stone location and the characteristics. Unfortunately, shockwave therapy cannot be performed um, with an indication for urgent decompression, and it also cannot be used in pregnant patients. And so you probably haven't really encountered this in your patient, in our patient population. Ureteroscopy with stenting is going to be the preferred method in pregnancy. And then stent exchange or nephrostomy tube change has to be performed much more frequently in pregnancy about every four to six weeks because of that higher GFR. And therefore, there's going to be a higher risk of stent or tube obstruction or infection. All right, Nick, let's say we've kind of done all of these things for our patient. We've tried to treat them, but then they keep coming back and they keep having stones. What's the next step? Yeah, so... Let's go through some general things first, um, which I think I'll title best practices to remember as an OB resident to prevent stones in you, Um, because there's a lot of things that I think are good advice that uh, also can help keep us working instead of suffering from kidney stones while on the labor floor. Sure. Um, (laughs) So first of all, fluid intake is really important, and the advice here is to drink enough fluid to produce around two liters of urine a day. Spread fluid out throughout the day, and studies have shown that even small amounts of urine volume increase, as low as just 300 cc's over your baseline, can reduce the risk of recurrence of kidney stones, which is great. Um, Water is the best choice, of course, but if you need to drop something, sweetened soda, eh, sweetened soda at the very least should be dropped due to the high phosphoric acid content. I was going to say that this is going to be one of those things that, um, you know, I feel like I really need to take this advice because definitely, especially in days on clinic or women in the, in the OR, I definitely don't drink enough to produce two liters of urine a day. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say too, as my own background for this, um, you know, a full sugar cola um, has over 400 milligrams of phosphoric acid in it. Um, I looked up for, I'm going to use a brand name here, LaCroix, just because I know that that is a popular bubbly water option that may keep people drinking around the clock. Um, That is less than five milligrams of phosphoric acid in a can. So um, I think by comparison is a great, great choice. (laughs) Not that we're getting sponsored by LaCroix. Yeah. No, not at all. Um, Anyways, kind of moving on. So fluid intake, we said, very important produce at least two liters of urine a day. Next is to limit your sodium intake to under 2,300 milligrams a day. Now, your medical students may be able to explain this better to you than I can, but basically calcium and sodium reabsorption is kind of, they go together in the proximal tubule um, down the sodium concentration gradient. And so basically by limiting the amount of sodium that you are taking in dietarily, you're actually going to enhance your reabsorption of sodium in the proximal tubule, and that will encourage also reabsorption of calcium at the same time. So you have less calcium that is leaving in the urine and would be there to help form a stone. Fruits and vegetables rich in potassium can help excrete citrate better that limits stone formation as well. Um, And then in obese patients, weight loss may help prevent stone recurrence as well, though the data admittedly is limited in this. Now, to finish out, there are patients who, again, have the most common type of stone, which is a calcium oxalate stone. Um, Interestingly enough, a calcium, like a solidly 
fueled calcium diet can be helpful. You want to try and obtain as much calcium from dietary sources as possible. Um, restricting calcium intake is actually not advised unless it's just excessive at baseline. Reducing animal protein intake is also really important. The high sulfur content in animal proteins generates more acid, which then through a variety of really complicated renal mechanisms that I'm not even going to try to explain, increases calcium excretion stone formation. Um, and then finally, limiting the intake of oxalate, fructose, and sucrose in the diet. All of those things increase calcium excretion and or oxalate excretion, which then again can contribute to calcium oxalate stone formation. All right, Faye, I think that we have gotten through what we can on the basics of kidney stones. Let's summarize. Sure. So in terms of our background, we talked about how common kidney stones are. They affect up to 10% of adults in the U.S., and they present with those classic symptoms that we may all know, which is that unilateral flank pain, colicky in nature, waxing and waning with episodes that radiate to the groin. It can also be associated with urinary urgency, hematuria, dysuria, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Some risk factors include things like hypertension, gout, obesity, diabetes, certain dietary characteristics, recurrent UTIs specifically, with urease-producing organisms, and then certain medication and supplemental use. Kidney stones are made up of different stone materials, but most commonly we have those calcium oxalate crystals that make up more than 80% calcium oxalate and calcium phosphate crystals, which make up more than 80% of kidney stones. The other types are less common and include uric acid, struvite, and cysteine stones. When you have a patient with suspected nephrolithiasis on the basis of their history and physical, labs that should be performed include a BMP to assess kidney function, as well as a urinalysis to assess for hematuria and the potential of infection, as a UTI present at the same time may complicate your stone management. The preferred imaging in the non-pregnant individual is a CT of the abdomen and pelvis without contrast. This allows for really good imaging of the kidneys, bladder, as well as the stone composition, and has a sensitivity of over 90%. In pregnancy or where CT is otherwise contraindicated, you're going to be using ultrasound of the kidneys and bladder. Again, this avoids radiation, still allows you to evaluate for the presence of stones and if a severe obstruction is present, but kind of the sensitivity is much poorer, only about 50 to 75% for stone detection. Complication rates, though, between the two diagnostic modalities are similar, less than 1%. Um, and so, again, in the pregnant patient, it's more prudent to use that ultrasound of stones with a primary suspicion. Thankfully, most patients can be managed expectantly with pain medication and hydration until the stone actually passes, but we do have to think about hospitalizing patients if they're not able to take anything by mouth. Patients should also be straining their urine and they can bring in the sediment or the stone to the clinic for analysis. Overall, NSAIDs are preferred for management of pain, but as we know, in pregnant patients, this is not necessarily a preferred medication, and so they may need to be hospitalized or given opioid medications. Stone size is actually the best predictor of passage, and stones that are greater than or equal to 10 millimeters are unlikely to pass spontaneously on their own. We can also consider things like medical expulsive therapy, so things like alpha blockers like tamsulosin 0.4 milligrams daily, as well as nifedipine and other calcium channel blockers. With respect to surgical indications, these include broadly persistent pain, an infection, or a urinary tract obstruction. Urgent decompression of stones is required in patients who have a suspected or confirmed UTI at the same time. Bilateral obstruction and acute kidney injury or unilateral obstruction and acute kidney injury if the patient only has one functioning kidney. 
Elective decompression can be considered in patients with stones that are 10 millimeters or greater, stones under 10 millimeters that haven't passed on their own after four to six weeks, or in the pregnant patient with stones after failing some observation period as well. Persistent kidney obstruction and recurrent UTIs are also a reason for elective decompression. Again, the primary surgical approaches are either shockwave lithotripsy, ureteroscopy with stenting, or percutaneous nephrolithotomy. The stenting and shockwave therapy are generally preferred, though shockwave therapy can't be performed urgently, and it also can't be performed in a pregnant patient. So ureteroscopy with stenting is going to be the preferred method in pregnancy. Stent exchange or nephrostomy tube change has to be performed much more frequently in pregnancy on the order of every four to six weeks. In terms of prevention of recurrent stones, the biggest thing is to make sure that there is enough fluid intake to produce at least two liters of urine a day. We should also limit sodium intake to under 2,300 milligrams a day and also increase things like fruits and vegetables rich in potassium to help excrete that citrate better. Also, weight loss in obese patients may be helpful to prevent stone recurrence, though the data overall is limited. And then in patients with the most common type of stone, which is the calcium oxalate stone, one thing that we may think is helpful is limiting calcium, but a calcium-rich diet may actually be helpful. We also want them to reduce animal protein intake and also limit the intake of things like oxalate, fructose, and sucrose. All right, Nick. So I think that brings us to the end of this episode on kidney stones. I hope it wasn't too painful. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreagGerverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at Coffee, And if you want to donate to the show, go on to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee. We have show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreagGerverCoffee.com. And if you want to reach out to us, give us a suggestion for the show or have corrections for us or just want to say hi, email us, coffee at gmail.com. <laughs>